Hello, hello, hello. So I hope you are all good. So just want to come on here to announce the next intake of the female fat loss program is now open. So we will be starting on the 13th of February 2023. So if you're looking to get results, get yourself some education on about nutrition and get away from that all or nothing approach, this is the program for you. So you will receive a program completely based off your nutrition goals that will improve your education levels, will educate you on how to train around certain times of your cycle, manage those pesky cravings, how to manage PMS. We'll also talk about if you've PCOS, endometriosis, pre-postnatal, perimenopause, menopause. It's for anyone that wants to come into the program. So what's involved? You get a personalized training program with video demonstrations. So you can do these at home. You don't need any equipment if you don't have. You can do it with two or three kg dumbbells if you want, or else you can go on to the next level, which is in the gym as well. Everyone can get results, or if you don't want to do the training, we can focus on getting some walking in or swimming in and or hiking in, whatever suits you. We'll set calories for you. So the calories will be set on weekly calorie averages. So that will allow you to have wiggle room for your weekends, for your takeaway with your family, and it will allow you to understand that one meal cannot mess up your whole week. Two meals cannot mess up your whole week. And that's the point. It's an education. I want this to be the last program that you ever do. You can also get free recipe books that are MyFitnessPal friendly, which have amazing brownies. Like people are like, well, I can't have brownies. Like you can't have brownies and you can make a part. That's why we aim for a weekly calorie average. We've weekly check-ins with myself. We've weekly Q&As as well, where you guys send in the questions and I put those out onto a weekly Q&A on every Tuesday and it's released as a podcast the next day. You also have a Facebook group where everyone is kind of involved. You can contribute as much as you want or as little as you want and there's little incentives to kind of go on there. So who is this program actually for? It's for people who want to learn how to get the best results they can. People who are sick and tired of that yo-yo dieting and not seeing results or not taking any action. People who want to lose body fat gain muscle, feel confidence in their bodies, guidance on how to manage PCOS, endometriosis, perimenopause, and people who want to kind of understand to actually manage those pesky cravings that they may be having. And we also, it's it's for people who want to be part of a like-minded community and support each other along the way. So the program is starting on the 13th of February and it is a six-week program. It's hands-on from myself, and I've li- I love talking to the groups. I love getting those Q and As. So, if you you'd fill in your check in every Monday, and you'll get feedback from me every Tuesday via email, and the results have been incredible. So, the statistics for people who are coming into the program: seventy percent of those who sign up for one end up doing another one or another one, which seventy percent is huge. So, some people end up doing. One, they go into other ones because they, they are seeing results and it changes their lifestyle, it changes their mindset and that's the biggest thing. So the program is six weeks, starts on the 13th of February and the price is 169 euro. If you are interested in working with me on that, click on the link in the show notes and we will reserve your space. I only have 10 spaces available and that's all I have. So if you are interested in working with me in the Female Fat Loss Program, Click on the link in the show notes or pop me a DM and we will get you booked in. Welcome to the next episode of the Shane Walsh podcast. So this is the return of Pixie Turner. So Pixie has been on the podcast before. And I think we spoke at the beginning of the very, very first 
lockdown or in between the first and second lockdown. But this is a really, really important episode. And I love Pixie's message. I love Pixie's ethos on, on kind of like nutrition. And Pixie has an amazing new book out called Food Therapy. And I was very lucky enough to get an early copy of it and read it in preparation ahead of doing this conversation, having this amazing conversation. So Pixie's book, Food Therapy, is out now. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it in any of your kind of main shops as well. But it's it's definitely worth a, a read, especially if you're someone who's coming from a food guilt background or a shame or punishment background and are wondering why that might be, those thoughts might be coming to you. Like for a very, very long time, we've been so ingrained with the concept of good v bad foods and that we barely notice that this is a big statement. And what Pixie is trying to do in this book is trying to dissect that, why we think that. And she brings and presents a new approach to how to look at your relationship with food. Instead of focus on rules, reduction, restriction, this book will help to give you practical tips and uncover the kind of physiological roots to your eating habits and introduce you to a new mindset that will dissect and deconstruct that kind of destructive relationship with food that you may have. So it's really, really important that you listen to it. I would highly recommend to get to the book. The book really, really does empower to eat freely, life, and it's really, really important. And Pixie breaks it down so simply and has a recap at the end of it, gives practical tools, practical things. And like from reading it, I was kind of like, I could hear an awful lot of the language that clients are talking to me on a daily basis, the DMs that they get on a daily basis, and a lot of the podcast topics I've spoken about. So I really do hope you enjoyed the episode with Pixie. And if I would highly, really, highly, highly recommend to go and get her a brand new book, Food Therapy. Pixie, how are we? I'm good. I'm excited to talk to you again. Welcome back. Yeah, it's been, I think it was like April or May or March 2021 when we last spoke. Um, so it's almost two years. Yeah. Um, and then I saw that the, the book was coming out. I was like, right, I'm going to reach out to Pixie and get this uh the brand new book and kind of because I, I think it's going to help an awful lot of people like we were talking about it off air I've been very lucky to see it and to kind of have a look at it and the one thing that I would say is it's very very relatable to and explained very very well to people who are have potential issues with food and that's a massive credit to you because it's not an easy topic no that's true it's definitely been one of the things I felt was most important was to make sure that everything could be easily understood. Nothing was overly complex. Everything was accessible. And it definitely comes across that way. So for anyone who isn't aware of who you are and what you do, uh, can you give us a little bit of a kind of a, a small elevator pitch? Okay. I am a registered nutritionist and I'm also a BACP accredited psychotherapist. So my food, my, my food, my work really involves food and therapy, which is why I call it food therapy and why the book is also called food therapy. So I primarily work with food related issues that have psychological roots to them. We're talking disordered eating, emotional eating, eating disorders, body image issues. Those are the things I specialize in. Awesome. And have you seen kind of like, because you work in a kind of uh, consultation setting where people kind of come in, have you seen kind of a, a, a surge in the last kind of couple of years in that? 
or has it kind of always been a continuous thing for you? Because I know you're in business about six years, I think you said five or six years. Six, uh, yeah, over six years now, coming up to seven years this year, which is exciting. Um, I really saw a massive increase during lockdown, actually, uh, that I was one of those few people for whom business exploded rather than dulled. And since then, it's just been nonstop. I think the pandemic does seem to have had an impact in that sense. But I think also a lot of people just reached a breaking point. And also I've become more experienced. And so in that sense, I think people are reaching out to me more. But it's, yeah, I've, it's all very busy. There's a way too many people with food issues, which obviously means I always have a job, but also is very sad that there are that many people with food issues. Yeah, um, I, it is quite scary. Cause you, like Sometimes when you're out and about, you can hear people saying, oh, I can't have this, can't have that. And that's kind of like, that's very kind of like may seem minimal, but it is quite, it can feel like a, a big thing for someone internally that dialogue kind of beats themselves up all the time where did the idea for the book actually come from because it's it's very it's in depth but it's very relatable as well so where did the idea for the book come from um a couple of things uh really firstly there are not many people in the uk who are dual qualified in the way that i am and i've worked very very hard to get here so i feel i have a bit of a right to kind of toot my own horn a little bit. And because that is such an unusual combination, I feel like I am in a kind of kind of special position to be able to offer what I offer, to really uh, merge these two things together. And that is still at this point in time, reasonably unique. And I want also want people to have more access to that because I'm very aware that therapy or any kind of one-to-one consultations in this kind of capacity are not accessible to a lot of people. And some people can't afford that on a weekly basis. It's expensive. It's time consuming. It's difficult. And I don't want people to necessarily miss out on that. And obviously, a, so for someone to buy a book is a hell of a lot cheaper. Obviously, it's not equivalent to yeah. therapy, but there are a lot of aspects of what I do in my practice. And a lot of the skills and the tools that I discuss are in the book. So it's very practical in that sense, which is very deliberate. And it comes across that way. There's kind of like it, as you said, it's not going to replace therapy, but it, it can definitely help you to recognize that when you're not on your own, your kind of thoughts and feelings around things are not on your own. Because I think that's one of the big things that kind of comes through from people is like, why do I feel like this? Why am I the only one to feel like this? But when you actually open the conversation and kind of actually talk to people about it, it's kind of like, unfortunately, there's many people who are feeling that way about food or themselves and. It, there's definitely different routes into it, um, which I don't think we're ever going to have enough time to kind of go into. But one of the big things that kind of comes in an awful lot is the kind of the, the message of kind of good v bad. And one of the things that you mentioned was a narrative of if I eat the good foods, I'm a good person. If I eat the bad foods, I'm a bad person. Where, like, how did that kind of idea or that kind of cultural, I'm going to say cultural norm, unfortunately that it is how did that kind of come about how do we actually change that narrative so i think it's one of those narratives that is just extremely pervasive and it's everywhere but we don't necessarily realize it so it's very very present in the way that we talk about food when we say things like oh i've been so bad today i ate some chocolate and we might see these things as quite lighthearted like throwaway comments not to be taken seriously but when we say these things over and over again we absolutely are reinforcing this idea that a particular food is making me a bad person or a particular food is making me a good person. And that gets reinforced over and over to the point where you actually do believe it 
even if you kind of say, oh, it doesn't mean anything, but it does. It does because you're repeating it to yourself over and over again. And I mean, it's just food, right? Like chocolate doesn't make you a bad person. You haven't burned down an orphanage for fuck's sake. I mean, come on, like in the grand scheme of things, there are way worse things that people do that actually potentially do make them bad people. Yeah. And chocolate isn't one of them, but we have this very pervasive idea. And also we like black and white things. We like things to be very black and white, very straightforward, good food, bad food, two nice neat camps, very straightforward. You eat the good foods, everything will be okay. You eat the bad foods, things will not be okay. And then you have something to beat yourself up for. And also then if if something happens to somebody else, we also like a bit of the, the just world fallacy, which is that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. Therefore, if something bad happens to somebody like an illness, for example, we then go, ah, but you ate the bad foods. Therefore, that is why the bad thing happened to you. And if I eat the good foods, that won't happen to me, which obviously is not how it works. It's a lot more complex than that. Our brains just don't like complex. Uh, our brains very much like black and white narratives and good food, bad food is a perfect example of that. We make it more complex for ourselves. We do when we end up reading huge amounts of nutrition information that is conflicting, for example. Uh, but also, yeah, when like one person says this is a good food, the other person says this is a bad food, ah, it all becomes very, very confusing. So we try and distill it down as much as possible. But it is, yeah, weirdly, food is too complex and also too oversimplified at the same time. It's very strange. Yeah, like it is one of those things kind of like nutrition as a concept is kind of like is easy-ish to understand. But once you kind of go back down into the basics of like, particularly would say someone that's training or whatever it is like protein protein timing supplementation x y is kind of like that's when it gets a little bit nitty like a little bit like more complex but most people don't need to worry about that stuff exactly uh they probably just need to probably eat more regularly and probably get more protein and veggies into their meals a little bit more i'm i'm breaking it down so basic but there's obviously more complex and it's like that dichotomous thinking that a lot of people can kind of get kind of get lost in but how do we kind of actually change that kind of going forward for the next generation because there is a certain generation that have that kind of like dichotomous thinking around food how do that we protect the next generation i think it is in the way that we talk about food and because the way that we talk about food is learned we pass it on from person to person and if we stop referring to foods as good and bad and start giving food the context that it absolutely deserves, because, you know, good is free of all context and that is not fair on food because food always needs context. But if we start adding in the context, if we start talking about food in a way that is more accurate, um, more nuanced, also just more celebratory in places as well, and just, just more lovely just in general, because food is a lovely thing. That would absolutely make a big, big difference. And primarily, of course, this is, you know, parents passing this on to their children. So if you can teach a child to relate to food in a certain way, because it is a learned thing, that can then make a huge difference for them growing up in terms of how they relate to food. They might then pass that on to other people. They pass it on to the next generation. And so it continues on and on and on. I know one of the big things you said that's kind of like that food guilt or that kind of language around fooding it is learned but like it's 
it's, it becomes a little because you obviously you're going to mimic your parents like whether you like it or not you get to a certain age in your life where you actually have that epiphany it's like i am my parent oh yeah. <laughs> yeah we absorb so much from our parents not just not just what they say but also what they don't say yeah well that's true or the mannerisms or whatever it may be that they kind of do i've definitely noticed that turn in the last six months it's kind of worrying uh, <laughs> it's very worrying um some of the in the book you talk about kind of some of the main kind of origins of food issues can you i you know you've mentioned one big one there is kind of like the who you're kind of learning off of, which is your your parents and that kind of stuff are there any other ones that kind of need to be kind of we need to be aware of yes i would say the big ones are early adverse childhood events or any kind of any kind of childhood events that might be deemed traumatic are big ones that can have a long lasting impact on the way that we relate to food ourselves our bodies all of that parents play a massive role now when i say parents i want to be very clear that unless someone is actively abusing their kids i don't blame parents if parents are actively abusive i do play the blame game and i blame them fully and i think they're a bunch of assholes but for the most part, I'm not interested in playing a blame game with parents. It's not about blaming your parents. It's about understanding how what they taught you deliberately or accidentally got you to where you are today. So I just want to get that out there straight away. So we've got trauma. We've got parents. Um, then we've also got things like shame, uh, how we learn about shame, how we what we are taught in particular about shame, what to feel ashamed of, whether or not we feel ashamed of our bodies, at what age we learn to perhaps be ashamed of our bodies and what our bodies are doing, who our bodies love, what our bodies are capable of, how they look, all of that. And then of course, you know, diet culture is also a big one that gets thrown in there that has connections to all the others because the influence of diet culture can be traumatic for a child. For example, if a child's put on a diet quite early and is uh, judged and teased and criticized and uh, singled out in that kind of way, uh, it can also then be linked to shame in terms of then a child being taught to feel ashamed of their body, for example. And uh, if it's inflicted by the parents, then that also has that connection there as well. But those are the big ones. Um, sometimes it's very clear in that someone has a single event that you can very clearly then from that connect the dots to who they are today. A lot of the time, however, it is a bit more complex. It is not just a single event that is basically the origin of their food issues. It's a whole bunch of interconnecting factors. But in my experience, a lot of the time it breaks down to either one or more of those four categories. Uh, like, yeah, I, I, the, the the trauma and the grief thing, I think that kind of came a lot like that came, because a lot of people were doing a lot less during the kind of like the lockdown period so kind of like to have that kind of rumination of the same things kind of going over the head obviously when we're busy we don't we run away from things um and we don't let, let sink that in but i think it's it's interesting that you kind of like a lot of people can pinpoint where kind of like a sentence was said and they latch onto that and it's become yeah. so 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 ingrained like you hear something like oh my granny said oh you're a chubby child or mm -hmm. you're such a chubby cheeks and that becomes like a self-professing story for such a long time. I don't think that's very yeah. uncommon. No, I think that is very common, in fact. And it it becomes very clear when you when you ask someone about these things. So in clinic, when I ask someone, you know, what did you learn about food? What did you learn about your body as a child? And it's amazing how often 
people come up with very clear, crystal clear, very distinct memories very quickly, as if the brain just offers it up straight away. And it's usually whatever comes up instantly in that moment, that is very important to go with because there's a very good reason why the brain brings that right to the surface, right to the forefront, because that is a significant memory. Because our memory works in strange ways. We don't remember things that don't hold significance for us. We remember the things most clearly that have the most meaning and the most significance. Therefore, whatever comes up very quickly like that is going to have meaning and significance for someone. And that has to be discussed because if it has meaning for the client, then it's important to me. Brains are mad thing. That's what I believe. Right? Brains it's are mad. weird. <laughs> Brains are weird. But like, yeah, but it's just, it's funny what stories we kind of can latch onto as humans. Like it's, it is, it's what if someone else would latch onto compared to someone else. And it's, yeah, it, it's, fa- it's fascinating. Yeah, definitely. Because you also, you can't predict it moving forward. You can't predict that saying a certain sentence to a child is going to produce a certain result. All you can do is look back in hindsight and connect the dots, but you you can't predict moving forward. Uh, there's a beautifully uh, famous quote, I'm not sure where I heard it, but it was a, uh, a dominatrix, and I was on a slight tangent here, but a dominatrix, they gave this fantastic quote. Uh, she said, half of her clients who have spanking kinks say that's because they weren't spanked as a child, and half of them say it's because they were. And that's a great example of you just can't predict what the what the impact is going to be. You can sometimes, uh, on the basis of probability, have an idea, but you you can't know for certain. Which is why all you can do when you go to therapy or you go in, engage in a process of reflection is to look back and connect the dots. You mentioned like we've, we kind of alluded to a little bit of kind of food guilt and kind of like food guilt is kind of like the underarching thing of shame. Like shame means I am wrong for having this food. And it's kind of like it's a deep ingrained stick that people beat themselves with, unfortunately. And th- there's really no need to do it. But someone in that just have that those blinkers on. They don't want to hear anything else. It's what they've learned. But you mentioned something about kind of food love because so many people are aware of, say, food guilt but they're not necessarily aware of what food love is. And can this be learned and rewired just like food guilt can be learned and rewired? Oh, absolutely. I think almost everything about this can be learned, unlearned, relearned. And I think that is partly what makes the process of engaging in this kind of reflection and exploration so powerful is that it really does have the power to completely transform how you view food yourself. You can do a total 180 um, in, sometimes it takes years, but you absolutely can do it. I think when it comes to food guilt, people have this expectation that you can just get rid of it. Yeah. And that's not quite how it works. You don't, you're not choosing to feel guilt in that moment. I think that's really important for people to remember. You're not choosing your emotions, but what you can choose is what to do with it once it appears. So what I often see is that people feel food guilt and then beat themselves up for feeling guilty because they feel like I shouldn't feel guilty. I don't want to feel guilty. Well, you can't help it because you were taught to feel guilt in that moment, not because you've done anything wrong, but because you've been taught that you should feel guilty. You've literally been taught to feel that guilt. So you're not choosing it for yourself. But if you can accept that it's likely to come up because of your conditioning, maybe stop beating yourself up for it and work with it differently once it's there, 
you stop reinforcing this idea that it is firstly this this terrible thing that you are should be ashamed of for even having in the first place. And secondly, by relating to it differently, you start to take the power out of it. And that's how you start to get rid of it. It's not by kind of poking at it directly, but, but, but by going, hi, guilt. I kind of expected you would show up. Come on in, take a seat, sit down, tell me about yourself. I, but you're not going to make me do anything different. You can sit here, but I'm not going to change my behavior because of you. But that's where you have the power. And do you, like, I know one of the things that kind of, can i don't know feel or hinder i don't know which one it is uh to say if someone's at like work and we'll talk about teachers or medical health professionals like nurses and doctors and stuff they're in the canteen or and they're in the, the the staff room or whatever and the language that people are using towards the food like how do you protect yourself from that because obviously if you're having these kind of like I'm going to use the typical example of a person called Karen because uh, Karen seems to get picked on a lot. Anyone who's Karen, I apologize. <laughs> but uh, they were like, oh, I can't have this. I'm being good. I, I'm i I'm, I'm counting my sins or I'm, I don't know, what other bullshit people use. But how can you protect yourself from that scenario? Because obviously people aren't in the office for some jobs, but they're still the frontline people who have got us through these last couple of years that are on that front line. And that we don't know how to kind of break ourselves away from those conversations. Have you got any tips for that? Yes. I want to firstly acknowledge that it's difficult when you're surrounded by the kind of food talk that you want to move away from. It's very difficult to then engage in that process by yourself because you're going to be influenced and affected by people around you. And of course you can't necessarily stop people from saying what they want to say. So you have, as the way I see it, a couple of options. You can either just uh, not engage with it and almost kind of imagine it kind of bouncing off you and just say, I'm not dealing with this. I'm not engaging with this. And that can be a good starting point because just your silence is in its own way, a powerful way of saying, I'm not taking part in this conversation. And also by not engaging with it, you're also then not accidentally encouraging that person to carry on talking and say more about that subject. So that is a, often a, a useful first step for people is they don't want to necessarily start by setting a boundary and saying, I don't want to hear about this, but they can feel they can start by just silently abstaining, basically. Um, and sometimes what happens is that people realize that you're not interested and stop talking about it. Of course, that doesn't always happen. They might continue on. But, you know, at least you feel like you're not actively engaging with it because you don't have to. You absolutely have a choice. You can just not engage in that conversation. Of course, a kind of more active part is then to set a boundary. And that is much more difficult because you can't predict or determine how people will respond to that. And that could be something like, can we please not talk about diet stuff while we're eating lunch? Yeah. Which... I think is perfectly reasonable, but also it doesn't matter if I think it's reasonable or not. But uh, that can be quite a good starting point because then they go, oh, but why not? Oh, you know, I just think it takes away from the enjoyment of food. And I like that because it doesn't make it about my feelings because then people can't go, oh, well, if you're offended, you need to like do this. It's no. like, no, fuck off. It's nothing to do with that. Also, just that's not a helpful conversation. But if it becomes a, no, I just feel it's a shame to take away from the enjoyment of food by talking about diet stuff anywhere else, but not here. In other words, I'm not going to stop you from talking about this, just maybe not in this particular environment. It's not really that different from no politics at the, at the dinner table, for example. 
it's, you know, I think it's perfectly reasonable. And then see how that goes. And if people react badly, that's okay. It doesn't mean you've done anything wrong. Not your problem. Well, you you can't. It's not within your control. Exactly. Your responsibility is to try and communicate it with some level of kindness and calmness. It's the other person's responsibility how they react. That's not up to you. You mentioned the big word there, the C word, control. That That is a, a big driver for an awful lot of people with people who can struggle with food. Why mm. is it such a big thing? People want to be in control of their lives so badly. And because we want to feel like we have agency over our own lives. We want to feel like we are in the driving seat. Well, not always. Some people don't want to take any responsibility at all, but you know, nah. there's a very nice clear divide in the population there. Um, but most of us want to feel like we are in some way in control of our lives because that means we can do something to change it, do something to fix it, do something to make it better. If we start to feel like we are powerless in a situation, well, what do we do with that? It's 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 a very hopeless situation and we really struggle with that. So when people feel out of control in their lives because of something that is happening, for example, maybe they're being bullied at work or they've gone through a breakup or, hey, maybe there's a global pandemic um, where you can't actually see the thing that is causing problems for everyone because it's this tiny virus that you can't see with the naked eye. That feels completely out of control and people then often turn to something that they feel they can control and which has very obvious physical implications, which is food and exercise. Because your body is the first thing that someone sees. It's like, it's, and that will come from, from different areas of wanting to have that control, that generally could come from childhood, trauma, all these different things. That you, it's interesting the head goes straight to like, that's like the, the body or the food. That's it. Like it, I, it's so. Is that kind of just like that kind of safety mode of kind of like, or that protector of your that kind of ego or psyche and your internal of kind of like, that's how I'm going to protect myself. Yes, I, I think there's a couple of reasons why it's food in particular that we turn to. I think it's firstly because uh, because our body is essentially the stage on which we enact all the different aspects of our lives, and it's the first thing that people see. Uh, you people see the body and make judgments about you based on your body. And they don't have to know anything about you, but if they see you, they are now making certain assumptions and judgments. So the body is the stage for all of this. But also as babies, we don't have a lot of power, but the one place we do have is in refusing food. Yeah, yeah we we the only power we have as as kids really, especially as babies, is to refuse food and to poop. In, in as as a protest, as an act of rebellion, in some ways, as some sense of control, those are the only two things we have: is food in and food out. And so, I think it's not too surprising then that food becomes such a common tool that people use because it has these very early life origins in terms of where we get our control from. Because you don't have any control as a baby; you can cry as well, yeah, but primarily the main kind of behavioral thing you can do is refuse food and shit wherever you want to shit you still do that now if you really want to but yeah. you could yeah well that's be some people still do <laughs> exactly um one of the terms that you mentioned in the book that i hadn't heard of i think it has a chapter on its own it definitely has a section on its own not sometimes it has a chapter on its own uh is i'm gonna murder this alexithymia alexithymia i'm yeah 
can you explain what that is and how how much it can actually impact the relationship of food for someone? So alexithymia is this curious little concept that is essentially when somebody has great difficulty or in some cases, no ability at all to recognize their own emotions. It's when somebody just can't understand what they're feeling, can't recognize what they're feeling. And that can also then extend to bodily sensations. So in very extreme cases, for example, someone might not feel heat or cold temperatures. Uh, in very extreme circumstances, what I've seen is that someone may um, get burned by hot water, by boiling water and not feel a single thing. So there's a real just disconnection in that sense. But primarily it's about emotions. So if you're, if you're, for example, someone who, if I ask you what you're feeling right now, can you tell me? Can you tell me quite quickly or does it take you quite a while to figure it out? Or do you just have no idea what you're feeling right now? Also, how do you know what you're feeling right now? Can you tell me where that feeling lives in your body? If you have real difficulty recognizing that, I'm not going to diagnose you over a podcast, but it may be that you have those kinds of tendencies that somewhere along the way, you have either not been taught how to recognize your emotions or something has happened to you that has led you to shut that off. So an element of kind of like emotional avoidance or like, how can you expect someone to know how to speak about their emotions if they've never been taught? That's right, gen- exactly. That's a generational thing. It's like you've been taught food guilt. If you didn't know, if you weren't taught food guilt, you wouldn't know what it is. Yeah. It's the same thing with, with the, the emotions and the emotional avoidance. Um, Absolutely. And if you don't know how to deal with your emotions, um, a lot of the time people, again, turn to food because they solve an emotional problem with a physical sensation of fullness. Because also a lot of the time what's really interesting is when people figure out that, for example, their sadness lives where their stomach is, for example. And then when you think about it that way, well, duh, of course, food is going to make it better. Of course, food is going to feel like it makes it better because they both live in the same air part of your body. So if you feel that that sadness, that emptiness in your stomach, this kind of awful feeling, but then you put food there, all of a sudden the food's now in the way of the feeling and you feel better. It makes just perfect, complete sense. And so many of our emotions are felt in our core where our digestive system is. So it just makes so much sense. And it's just this, I love it. it I'm just smiling so much because I just, these kinds of light bulb moments that people have when I get to witness that, it's just one of my favorite things. It's just glorious when they go, oh my God, I make so much more sense now. And that's just, oh, it's just the best. And I don't think people realize how much of our happy hormone is in our gut. So like if mm. you're feeling it with happy, if you're feeling with food, which makes an awful lot of us happy and rightly so, that if your gut's looking for the happy hormone to be hit, you're going to have to fuel it with something. Also, food is supposed to make you happy. Food is supposed to taste good. We have we have literally evolved to enjoy the things that we need for survival. Because like, like sex, for example, if it were miserable, like if it were just, just there was no pleasure, no joy in it whatsoever, humans would not exist anymore. Because <laughs> why would we bother? And same with food. Food tastes good because we need to eat to survive. So there is a very distinct evolutionary advantage in food being enjoyable. So the idea that we should take joy away from food is just bollocks. How common is alexithymia? Ooh, um, it's very difficult to tell exactly. So there's there's definitely a higher prevalence in those with eating disorders, for example. Right. And there is also a higher prevalence in people who've experienced multiple 
um, adverse childhood events or childhood traumas, in particular, um, if someone ha has experienced um, abuse at the hands of their parents, for example, much more likely. Um, but in terms of the actual prevalence in the general population, it's hard. It's not really, you know, we don't really test it in the general population. We tend to test it in specific populations. But eating disorders and food issues, particularly anorexia, more so than bulimia or binge eating disorder, um, extremely prevalent, is actually considered to be potentially one of the driving factors in some cases of certain eating disorders. And it is a huge barrier as well to recovery. Okay. Uh, that's interesting. And like, because I know an awful lot of kind of what can drive the anorexia and bulimia and eating disorders and disordered eating patterns. I think it's important to understand what the, di the difference is of between disordered eating pattern and eating disorder. I think that's an important definition to kind of get right first. But the inner critic, this voice, this inner dialogue, how can we deal with that? How can people deal with that? So I, I like to ask a couple of exploratory questions around the inner critic. Um, of course, you know, this is me. I'm not going to give you a straight answer to this. There's more information that is needed. So oh, it makes for a better podcast, so it's fine. Yeah, there we go. So I always like to ask people, okay, what what exactly does it say? Write it down. Write down exact the exact wording of what your inner critic says. Partly so you can see it, partly so you can start to create some distance from it and go, whoa, that's mean. I also like to ask people, who does it sound like? And that produces some very interesting conversations because sometimes it sounds like a parent or a significant adult in their life, in which case, hmm, interesting. I wonder who you might have learned this from. Uh, sometimes it sounds like a younger version of themselves, in which case I want to know what happened at that time or when they were that age that meant that their inner critic is locked at that particular time. Uh, and sometimes it sounds like themselves. And if it sounds like themselves at their current age, that usually means that whatever they've learned, they've internalized it to the extent that they feel it comes from within rather than from without. But it is just very interesting for people to explore that because most people just don't think about it. They just take the voice for granted it's and don't ask enough questions. Exactly. And that's also why I think it's important to write down exactly what it says, especially if you are one of those people who has a, a nice inner monologue where you can very clearly just write down exactly what's being said as if you're transcribing it, basically. Um, because then, yeah, especially if you're used to hearing it all day, every day, writing it down and going, ooh, that's mean. That yeah. happens a lot, where people write it down and then they go, ooh, I don't actually want to tell you what these are, they say to me, because they just sound so mean. Okay, now you're seeing them more clearly. Now you're seeing them for what they actually are. At that point, you have, I think, a number of options in terms of how to deal with it. And this is where I integrate multiple therapeutic modalities because eh, it's boring to have just one. Let's smash them all together. Uh, one is your kind of classic CBT kind of homework where you take the, you, you take the mean thought and you turn it into a nice self-compassionate thought and put that as your alternative and deliberately consciously tell yourself that and go through that process and repeat it 100, 200, 300 times until it starts to feel more natural. It's boring, it's repetitive, but it works. Another option I like is for people to practice something called diffusion. Because the idea with these thoughts is that we are so completely fused and trapped by them that we say them as if they are facts and not thoughts. So if you have the thought of, I'm such an idiot, well, that's a statement of fact, but that's that's bullshit. It's not a statement of fact, it's a thought. So when you instead say, I'm having the thought, 
that I'm stupid. Well, now that changes it. You've gone from I'm stupid to I'm having the thought that I'm stupid. Do you hear how different that sounds? Yeah, it sounds com- yeah, it's completely like, different. It's stepping away from it and actually seeing it like as if it's written, like you were talking about a second ago. You're kind of like, kind of like almost moving away from, say, you feel your body's here and you're looking back from a, from a different lens or whatever. It's 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 stepping away from the actual narrative that you've created. Yeah, exactly. And also, you're turning it into a thought, which is what it is. So now you get to see it more accurately. It is not a statement of fact. It is a thought and it deserves to be labeled appropriately so that you can deal with it appropriately. And the, I think it's really important to understand what the difference between disordered eating is and a eating disorder is because there, it's, it, yeah, it's important to understand. Can you explain what the difference is, please? Yeah, absolutely. So disordered eating is, I guess, in some ways, an umbrella term that encapsulates uh, eating disorders, but also non-clinical food issues. Eating disorders have very specific diagnostic criteria um, that were decided, you know, a couple of decades ago, have been updated a couple of times since. But with an eating disorder, if you meet the diagnostic criteria, you have an eating disorder. If you don't, because you are, you meet perhaps some or not all, or you don't meet enough, or it's not deemed to be serious, serious enough, I put that in quote in quotes, then that would be subclinical, uh, which we would call then disordered eating. And of course, there's a huge range of what disordered eating can be. It can be anything from, you know, some anxiety around spontaneous food decisions. You could argue, some might argue that is disordered eating all the way to like the very border that is like very close to an eating disorder, but because of strict diagnostic criteria doesn't quite meet it. And yeah, like, because I think a lot of people will kind of, they're, they're kind of like, the diagnostic the diagnostic criteria so people will be able to take some boxes and like that a lot of people can have and probably do have a lot of kind of elements of kind of like a, a disordered eating pattern of kind of like yeah. believing certain rules around food dichotomous thinking all or nothing certain foods they can't have they put them on pedestals like the ones that come to mind straight away are like carbohydrates sugars fats yeah anything all of really. that All of that. Yeah. And I want to be very clear that just even if you don't meet the diagnostic criteria, it doesn't mean that your concerns are any less valid. It doesn't mean that you are any less deserving of help and support. It just sometimes means that through organizations like the NHS, it can be more difficult. Um, But there are obviously other avenues, well, private for one, but also things like charities and local organizations. Um, But I, I say this because I hear from people things like, oh, I didn't think it was bad enough. You must see people who are worse and who need this more. And I'm like, I don't care what other people have to say. I don't care what what other people's concerns are. When I'm speaking with someone in the moment, there is no comparison. There shouldn't be any comparison. It's only what that person says is important to them that they want to resolve. That's all that matters. And I think that's a really that's that's the same with any therapy. I remember when I went to therapy, it was like, well, I'm, I'm not bad enough. It's like, Shane, you're pretty bad. <laughs> Shane, you're pretty bad. You need you need to go and see therapy. So yeah, it's not it's not. I think there's that comparison thing of like they deserve it more, or and I'm only talking from my own experience, and that's all I can ever talk from. It's like they deserve it more, or they're worse off, and it's kind of like that shouldn't be what it's about. It's about looking after you first. Like you can look after you first, life gets a little bit easier for you to kind of like get through things, um, and understand where getting to the deep root cause and kind of having those kind of 
reflections and being able to challenge these thoughts and stuff like that so i think that's really important the last question i think is a massive section in the book on this which is perfectionism mm. why well one what is perfectionism two what does it feel by and three why has it been on such a rise since the 80s really okay there's a lot there so perfectionism by which we're primarily referring to maladaptive perfectionism is a way of thinking believing um and behaving in the world where you have very black and white thoughts there is a very strong fear of failure you're very driven by that fear of failure and there's a lot of thinking about should there's a lot of shoulds in the way that you talk to yourself but also it's very all or nothing. So for example, it's uh, I should you know, be, be acing this test perfectly. If I get anything other than 100%, I'm a failure. And, um, you know, which is also quite black and white in that sense as well. And it's where someone has very unrealistically high standards for themselves, struggles to meet them, and is very self-critical when they struggle to meet those. People have this misconception that perfectionism means doing everything perfectly. And that's absolutely not the case. No, no. Perfectionism is simply the belief that you should be and having extremely high expectations that you probably wouldn't have of other people. And also that very strong sense of failure, that very strong fear of failure. And actually, ironically, as a perfectionist, you usually end up failing more than your average person because your stance is so high and because your fear of failure is so high and because what you deem to be acceptable is such a narrow window. So you end up ironically failing more as a perfectionist. So these are kind of the, I guess, the defining hallmarks of this kind of maladaptive perfectionism. It does. Um, the research does show that it has been on the rise since the 80s. So, and I see this as well. It is more prominent in your millennials, uh, in your in your Gen Z, to to an extent also in Gen X, but not quite as much. It seems to be just happening more and more. The younger generation you go, and this seems to be for a couple of reasons. Firstly, social media seems to be having a big impact. So, because we are seeing more of people's highlights rather than the full story of people's lives. There's a much more opportunity for the kind of comparison that makes people feel crap about themselves, for example. Uh, there's also the fact that our schooling system has changed to become a lot more focused on numbers, a lot more focused on kind of very specific outcomes. It's become more competitive to get to university, for example, in some cases. And a lot of this kind of focus on numerical outcomes very much drives that kind of perfectionism. And then of course, alongside that, we have the numerical outcomes of body size and body weight. So it all kind of ties in together quite nicely in that way. And what you usually see is it's very rare for someone to be a perfectionist in only one area of their life. So often what happens is that they are perfectionist around food, but also then around their schoolwork, also then around how they are as a person in terms of their relationships to other people. I need to be the perfect friend. I should be the perfect friend. I should be the perfect student. I should have the perfect body. And it all kind of coalesces together. And that's usually how it impacts food. But also, if you are trying to pursue a better relationship with food in your body, perfectionism is just totally going to get in the way because you're going to fail, quote unquote, in your eyes so much more easily, which is very disheartening and makes you more likely to give up. You're going to see things as way too black and white, 
which then also means you're um, you end up in a what I call a fuck it kind of narrative where one thing goes wrong. So eh, fuck it. I'm just going to throw the whole thing away. And also because you have all these shoulds that you are then telling yourself, like, for example, I should be able to do this. I should be able to eat perfectly without any help. All of this. It also then discourages you from seeking help. But also when you do seek help and it doesn't go as quickly or as perfectly as you want it to, again, you get discouraged. So I actually spend a lot of time with people dismantling perfectionistic uh, thoughts and beliefs. And how much of a lead-in is procrastination into perfectionism? Like it has to be the right time to do it. Yeah. So procrastination is very common in perfectionism, um, partly because of this idea of, well, if I can't do it perfectly, I don't want to do it at all. Yeah. And because they're so afraid of do- of failing and doing it wrong, they delay it and delay it and delay it because the idea of starting it, the, the idea of starting it and not, succeed, not succeeding feels worse than not starting it at all. And that's where the procrastination comes in until there comes a point where you either just forget about it, the fuck it, or you do it because you have to. And then you beat yourself up for having procrastinated. And then you beat yourself up for it maybe not being perfect. Is it kind of coming from feeling kind of like unsafe of kind of that failing thing? Yeah, this idea that failure is so deeply unacceptable that we must avoid it at all costs. Is it a, is perfection is perfectionism a learned thing or is it something that's ingrained in us? It depends. I, I, I yeah. It's, I mean, see, people say it's a bit of both. I often, um, when I talk to people, they sometimes say, oh, I've always been a perfectionist. And I'm like, really? As a baby? As a, as a, yeah, a perfectionist? Say, like, yeah. Come on, come on, really? Um, what they really mean, I think, is for as long as I can remember, I have had this pressure to do everything to a ridiculously high standard. I've had this pressure put on me and I feel this this need to do everything perfectly and be perfect. I think that's what they're really saying. I don't ascribe to this idea that it is part of your DNA and, and cannot be changed ever. I very much believe that it can be, even if it's something that is ingrained in you from really early. I mean, I'm one of those people, right? I was, I, if you ask me, when did I first realize I was a perfectionist? I'm like, well, I feel like I've been a perfectionist my whole life. Yeah. But, you know, that's many, many years of, of my life. For as long as I can remember, I don't remember ever not being a perfectionist. But that doesn't mean I can't change it. I have. I very much have. I have switched from a maladaptive perfectionistic style to an adaptive perfectionistic style. I still hold all the positive elements of uh, perfectionism. For example, the the drive to succeed, the ambition, the um, the dedication to sit and work. I'm self-employed. I kind of have to. But I now celebrate my achievements and I don't expect perfection. I go for good enough, not perfect. And I don't procrastinate as much and I get more done and just as well, which is weird. And I don't beat myself up for it. And it's actually quite nice. Did you have to figure out what good enough for you was though? Oh yeah. Yeah. That was a big question because it also varies from circumstance to circumstance, right? It's like, what is good enough in terms of, you know, uh, exercise. What is good enough in terms of this aspect of my work? What is good enough in terms of my my client work, for example? Because I can't be perfect all the time, but I would say I'm good enough across the board because I'm not harming anyone for one, but also because I know how to be engaged. I know what I need to in, do, to do a good enough job. But yeah, it's a big question that what is good enough? 
Yeah, it's it's an uncomfortable question because it's not it's challenging that narrative and it's kind of get, it it does get uncomfortable. Um, yeah. but speaking of something that you should be extremely proud of, and I, I really do hope you celebrate it uh, when when it's released. Can when is food therapy out, and where can people get the book? So I think by the time this comes out, food therapy will be out because it's yeah. out on the twenty sixth of January. Yep, and you can get it in all the bookshops, all the usual um, online massive billionaire conglomerates. And uh, also from your local bookshop, please do support your local bookshops. Uh, there's an audiobook version, which I have recorded. So you get to hear the beautiful sound of my voice talking you through you all the skills. Oh, it was great. I didn't think anyone else should really do it or could really do it because I talk, I do share some elements of my own experience in the book. And also it's, I talk about why I'm qualified to write this book, for example. And I think it'd be weird if someone else read that out loud. Yeah, that's true. That makes sense. But no, I really enjoyed it. It was, it was good fun. So yeah, if you want the audiobook, you can also get that and hear my voice for like seven hours or whatever it is. Yeah. Awesome. No, Pixie, thank you so much for, for coming back on. And I think there's so much in there. That's someone that a lot of people are going to resonate with and we are going to be kind of going like, Oh my God, Pixie's talking to me about me. And I think that's what's going to come out of the book as well. So thank you so much for coming back on. Where can people find out about you on social media and potentially work with you as well? So I am at Pixie Nutrition on all the things. I've also recently joined TikTok and I'm still getting used to it, but it, I find it a bit strange. Uh, but I'm at the food therapy center on TikTok because that's I'm the director and clinical lead at the food therapy center. Um it's my business. Um yeah, but other mainly Pixie Nutrition and all the things. I mainly use Instagram. I don't really use Facebook or Twitter anymore, especially since Twitter has become a cesspool. <laughs> or more of a cesspool than it used to be. It's a polite um, way of putting it, but <laughs> yes, and through there you can find the the website and so on. Awesome. Pixie, thank you so much for, for coming on. And if you want to go, I'd highly recommend going to buy the book. I am so lucky to get a copy of it and it it is, it's truly exceptional. So congratulations on the book, Pixie. Thank you. I'm very excited about the book. Thank you so much for coming on. What an amazing episode with Pixie and I cannot thank Pixie enough for coming on the work that she does with, with clients. And I really do hope that you've you've learned something from that. If it's something that has triggered you in that, I really do hope that you're aware that there is support out there for you from working with the likes of Pixie or other therapists that are out there as well to kind of get to the nitty gritty of why food guilt, why perfectionist mentality, all or nothing mentality, improving that language around food. So rather than potentially going on another diet, what could be a great way of looking at it is improving your relationship with food and understanding that food is a source of energy. Food is something that should be celebrated, something that shouldn't be feared. So I really do hope that you've enjoyed that episode with Pixie. If you have enjoyed it, please do tag Pixie and I up on your story. And if you're interested in working with Pixie and or myself, please feel free to kick on the show notes and we can book in a consultation from there. So thank you so much. Please leave a review. Please share the podcast. Please pass it on to friends. I really do hope you've enjoyed this episode of Pixie Turner.